0: There's a legend from ancient Greece that tells about an Italian-born adventurer named Ambrosio, who sometime around the year 450 BC traveled to see the legendary Oracle of Delphi in order to have his fortune told. What happened next wasn't exactly the magical moment Ambrosio had been hoping for. The only thing the Oracle said to him the moment she laid eyes on him was the cryptic statement, The curse, the moon, the blood will run. Ambrosio didn't know what to make of this, but he did find it vaguely unnerving. So he spent the night outside the temple pondering the oracle's meaning. As the morning light first broke over the horizon, a beautiful young maiden appeared. Her name was Celine, and it turned out she was the oracle's sister. It was her job to care for the temple, as well as attend to her sister's needs. Well, that settled it. One look at Celine. And Ambrosio decided he wasn't going anywhere. He remained living outside the temple for days, and each morning Celine would return, and each time he would become more and more infatuated with her. Ambrosio soon fell madly in love with her. He begged Celine to run away with him and marry him, but there was a problem, a big one. You see, the Temple of Delphi, as well as the Oracle and everything in it, were the property of the god Apollo. That included Selene. So when Apollo looked down and saw this puny human attempting to take what rightfully belonged to him, he was furious. Apollo cursed Ambrosio so that the sun would burn his flesh, prohibiting him from meeting Selene the following morning and whisking her off to Italy as planned. Ambrosio was forced to flee to some nearby caves in order to get out of the sun. And that's where he sought the protection of the Lord of the Underworld, Hades. Together, Hades and Ambrosio cooked up a pretty complex deal that was like an ancient Greek version of a heist movie. In the deal, Ambrosio agreed to give Hades his soul as down payment. In return, Hades provided him with a magical wooden bow with eleven arrows. Ambrosio would then offer his kill to Artemis, sister of Apollo, allowing him time to sneak behind her back and steal her own magical silver bow, which he would then deliver to Hades in exchange for his soul. But like any good heist movie, things didn't go off exactly according to plan. Ambrosio squandered the arrows by killing swans and writing love poems to Selene in their blood. He actually managed to steal Artemis' bow, but upon realizing what he had done, She bestowed another curse upon him, in which the touch of silver would burn his skin, forcing him to drop the bow. By now, Ambrosio was really in deep trouble. Not only was Apollo furious at him, but so was his sister, the goddess of the hunt. Ambrosio fell to his knees before Artemis and begged for mercy. Artemis felt pity for the man, and gave him one last chance. She bestowed upon him special abilities— granting him strength and speed equal to her own, as well as fangs that would allow him to tear open the veins of his prey so that he might continue to write his beautiful poetry, which she had come to appreciate. But there was a catch to all this. In exchange for his new superpowers, Ambrosio had to agree to forsake all other gods and worship only Artemis. That included giving up Selene. In fact, part of the bargain he struck was that he was never allowed to physically touch his beloved again. He reluctantly agreed, and that night he wrote a letter to Celine, instructing her to meet him on his ship. Down in the ship's hall, Celine discovered a wooden coffin with a note laying on top of the lid instructing her to set sail and to only open the coffin after nightfall. That night, Ambrosio climbed out of the coffin and explained to his beloved that he could never touch her, but he still begged her to stay with him. Celine agreed, for she too had fallen madly in love with Ambrosio and couldn't bear to be apart from him, even if they could never touch. The couple sailed to Ephesus together, and there they lived in the caves under the protective cover of darkness. Ambrosio never aged, but the same could not be said for Celine, who continued to grow older and sicker over time. Ambrosio knew that his time with Selene was growing short. With his soul still in Hades' possession, the couple had no hope of spending eternity together. So one night, Ambrosio went down to the shore and found a swan, which he killed and offered to Artemis as a tribute. Artemis appeared and offered him one last deal. She would allow him to touch Selene just once, but only so that he could drink her blood. She ensured Ambrosio that though this act would kill Celine's mortal body, it would also guarantee that the couple could stay together forever. Ambrosio did as instructed and drank Celine's blood, and upon laying her lifeless body down, she began to radiate the most beautiful silvery light. He stared, slack jawed and amazed, as her spirit rose up into the sky and met with Artemis at the moon, which began to glow with that same ethereal light. From then on, Celine became the goddess of moonlight, and each night she would reach down with her celestial rays to caress Ambrosio and their offspring, each of whom carried their blood within them, each of whom was a vampire. The tale of Ambrosio and Celine is often cited as the earliest recorded vampire story in history. The idea that blood has magical properties that can allow someone to live forever is a legend that appears repeatedly throughout history. Blood has been used as a key ingredient in rituals all over the world. From the blood sacrifices of the ancient Mayans to the black magic rituals that occurred in medieval Europe. Blood is, of course, also at the core of the countless vampire legends that exist around the world. It's the source of a vampire's power and the quite literal fuel that keeps him going for all eternity. There is one story in particular from 16th century Hungary where tales of blood magic rituals and vampires collide to form a horrific legend. But like so many ancient legends, this one also has a basis in fact. It's a story of a wealthy and vain countess who believed that the blood of young women could keep her eternally youthful. This is the story of Countess Elizabeth Bothery, and some people believe she may be the most prolific female serial killer in history. I'm Nate Hale, and I switched to diet blood in order to watch my weight. And this is The Conspirators. In 1526, Turkey Suleiman the Magnificent defeated the Hungarian king in battle. Afterwards, Hungary was then broken into three parts and became a region plagued with constant wars and with massive inequality between the rich and poor. The south was ruled by the Turks, while another section to the north became ruled by the Austrian Habsburgs. A third section, situated around the slopes of the Carpathian Mountains, became ruled by local lords and would come to famously be known as Transylvania. Vampire legends would become synonymous with Transylvania. And of course, the mere mention of the name Transylvania instantly brings to mind the name of a particularly infamous 15th century Wallachian prince, Vlad Tepish II, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, a.k.a. Vlad Tepish Dracula. But it's not the story of Dracula we're talking about today. Rather, our story begins in 1560 in the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains, with the birth of a girl named Ersabet, or as her name became Anglicized into what we know today, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Bothery's family was one of the wealthiest and most prominent in the region. In fact, her uncle was the king of Poland, and there were other members of her family who were knights, judges, and even a cardinal in the Catholic Church. In short, Elizabeth had some serious connections. When Elizabeth was still a young girl, she snuck away from her parents' castle to witness her first execution. The condemned prisoner was a Romani entertainer who had allegedly sold his children to the Hungarians' mortal enemies, the Turks. It wasn't so much selling his own children that got him in trouble, but striking a deal with the Turks was considered a major no-no. The execution was performed using a favorite method of the ancient Romans. They took the condemned prisoner while still alive and sewed him up inside the gutted corpse of a horse, leaving only his head sticking out of the hole. Then the horse was left out in the hot sun to rot As the horse bloated, the heat from the buildup of gases inside eventually cooked the man alive. It's believed that Elizabeth may have seen all this go down when she was just six years old. In keeping with the times, in order to keep the royal bloodline pure and their families wealthy, Elizabeth was betrothed to the son of another prominent Protestant family, Ferenc Nadazny, when she was just eleven. They were married when Elizabeth was just shy of her fifteenth birthday, and Count Ferenc turned twenty. Because her lineage outranked Ferencia's family, she retained her surname, and that's why even today we still know her as Elizabeth Bothery. Prior to their marriage, Elizabeth was sent to live with the Nadjazni family, where she would be trained for her future role as a countess. Rumor has it that the then 13-year-old Elizabeth grew bored with her official duties and began hanging out with one of the peasant boys who lived on the estate and actually became pregnant by him. So the rumor goes that Elizabeth's mother spirited the infant away, and Count Ferenc set about getting revenge on the father in the most ferocious way possible. He had the peasant boy castrated, then set loose a pack of dogs to rip him to shreds. Back then, there was such a discrepancy between the rich and poor that this wouldn't have even been considered a crime. It also serves as a precursor to some of the horrors still to come. After Elizabeth and Ferenc were married the couple's combined wealth was greater than that of even the king of hungary they owned several homes but they primarily lived in Kashtis castle the count's wedding gift to her it would take more than 10 years before the marriage produced any children not because either of them was infertile rather it was primarily because the count just plain wasn't around just three years after they were wed count Ferenc was named the chief commander of all hungarian troops and he went off for months at a stretch to battle the Ottoman Empire. In fact, one of Elizabeth's letters to her husband is spent reprimanding him for waltzing off to Transylvania without telling her. Count Ferenc turned out to be really great at war. He quickly gained a reputation as a fierce and cold-blooded warrior. He earned the nickname the Black Knight of Hungary due to his reputation for insane levels of inhuman cruelty during what came to be known as the Long War. It was said that Count Ferenc sometimes played catch with the severed heads of the Turks he slaughtered. The long war turned out to be quite lucrative for him as well. The extended battle drained Hungary's coffers so steadily that the ruling Habsburg family needed to reach out to Elizabeth and Ferenc's family for a loan on more than one occasion. But with her husband off for long stretches playing war, that left Elizabeth back at home with far too much time in her hands. She tried engaging in affairs with a number of young men, but that never seemed to fulfill her as much as the great pleasure she felt when she was inflicting pain on the young servant girls in her employ. Throughout the late 1500s, the local villages would receive many visits from envoys from Elizabeth's castle looking for young girls to come live in the castle and work as the countess's servants. Keep in mind, this was considered a big chance for these girls, who were all born into a life of peasantry, Even a life of having to scrub floors and empty chamber pots was a step up from the abject squalor they were born into, but these girls didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. The Countess had a sadistic streak a mile long, and her husband, Count Ferenc, didn't seem to mind her behavior in the least. He had plenty of experience torturing Turkish prisoners, so it didn't matter one bit to him that his wife seemed to enjoy inflicting pain on young girls. He even taught her a few tricks of his own. One was called star-kicking, and involved rolling up an oil-soaked piece of paper and sticking it between a servant girl's toes before lighting it on fire. He also reportedly bought his wife a clawed glove she used to shred the flesh of her servants. The couple thought this was all great fun, and it was perfectly legal too. After an anti-feudalist uprising was quashed in 1514, A new Hungarian legal code called the tripartitum reduced the rights of the peasants to almost nothing and simultaneously protected the wealthy nobles by allowing them to do pretty much whatever they wanted. But if it was the count who taught Elizabeth how to inflict pain, it was another addition to her household that taught her how to kill. One of the most trusted servants who came to work for Elizabeth was an older woman named Anna Darvulia who the locals described as a wild beast in female form. She was also rumored to be a witch. Once she arrived at the castle, people noticed that Elizabeth appeared to become even more cruel, if that was even remotely possible. It was Anna who helped bring the young girls to Elizabeth, and Anna had lots of ideas what to do with them after. Some stories say that Elizabeth would heat up coins and keys over a flame until they became white-hot, before dropping them into the hands of the hapless girl. Other times they would take the girls out into the snow in the middle of winter and force them to strip naked. Then they would pour water over their bare skin and allow them to freeze to death in the bitter cold. In the warmer months, Elizabeth would take girls out into the fields and strip them naked before covering their bodies in honey and allowing insects to crawl over them and bite at their flesh. Eventually, Elizabeth began to take her hobby indoors and turned a room on the castle's lower level into her own private torture chamber. Here she would do things like have girls' mouths sewn shut and jab sharp implements under their fingernails or into their lips and genitals. Once, Elizabeth jammed her fingers into a girl's mouth and tore apart her face with her bare hands. She hung a cylindrical iron cage filled with metal spikes similar to an Iron Maiden from the ceiling. After a girl was locked inside the cage and hoisted up in the air, Elizabeth would prod at the girl with a red hot poker, forcing her to impale herself against the spikes. In 1604, Count Ferenc died from a long illness. This left Elizabeth alone and only seemed to further escalate her quite literal bloodlust. By now, she was in her 40s and she didn't like getting older one bit. She was incredibly vain and now her beauty was beginning to fade. One day while Elizabeth was torturing one of her servant girls, some of the girl's blood got onto her hand. Elizabeth was delighted when she wiped her hand off and believed that her skin, where the blood had touched, was now softer and whiter than it had been before. It seemed clear to Elizabeth now. Blood was the answer to keeping her young. Elizabeth began demanding these girls be brought directly to her room, where she would cut them apart and even sometimes chew on their flesh. But she had a problem. There were only so many peasant girls to go around, and it was getting harder and harder for Elizabeth's accomplices to find young women willing to come work in the castle. Rumors had begun to circulate among the locals about the number of girls who went to the castle, only never to return. But that was just part of the problem, Not only were they having trouble finding more girls to satisfy Elizabeth's sick needs, but it was also becoming more and more difficult to dispose of all the corpses the Countess had already left behind. Local pastors became suspicious when Elizabeth asked them to perform funeral rites for a large number of servant girls, who allegedly died of cholera all at the same time. It really set off their alarm bells when she tried asking them to bless an oversized coffin that was rumored to contain three dead bodies. One particularly brave pastor even went so far as to threaten to expose what he suspected was really going on by digging up the coffin of the last girl buried and seeing what she really died from. This caused Elizabeth to storm out of the church in a rage. With no other recourse, Elizabeth's accomplices had to resort to dumping many of the bodies wherever they could sneak away to undetected. As the remains were discovered over time, This only brought about more fear among the villagers, who began to believe they were being plagued by vampires. As Elizabeth's options ran out among the peasants, she began to look toward the children from her own social circle for fresh victims. She started out by preying upon young women of noble birth, who had the least amount of wealth and power, and who were the least likely to be missed. But even those numbers began to grow thin, so Elizabeth gradually began working her way up the aristocratic ladder. At one point, she actually came up with a bizarre scheme to start a finishing school for the young daughters of wealthy aristocrats. This would provide her both with cash as well as a steady supply of fresh meat to choose from. But Elizabeth obviously didn't think this plan through. Because when several parents began writing to her inquiring how their daughters were doing, she ended up claiming there were no girls left on the property after one of the girls went into a jealous rage and murdered every single one of them before committing suicide. By now, Elizabeth wasn't fooling anyone. Although stories had been around for years of peasant girls going missing, those stories never concerned the wealthy rulers. It was only when disturbing rumors began to surface of young, noble girls appearing in town with mutilated faces and grotesque burns, and even one who turned up with a knife sticking out of her foot, that people finally took action. The King of Hungary heard about all these rumors and dispatched a trusted advisor to investigate the matter. That advisor was none other than Elizabeth's cousin, Count Georgi Thurzo, the Count Palatine of Hungary. He was also the man Count Ferench had entrusted with Elizabeth's well-being shortly before he died. Count Thurzo was rightly concerned about poking around into the affairs of a woman whose care he had been entrusted with by a good friend on his deathbed. But he had also heard all the rumors, and he knew he had to forge ahead anyway, but quietly. He found literally dozens of former and current servants, as well as other visitors to Elizabeth's castle, who eagerly told him that they suspected that the Countess had been up to no good. They had seen bloodstains all over the castle walls, and at night they could hear the screams of young women echoing through the corridors. But none of these witnesses claimed to have seen anything personally. There were parts of the castle that were strictly off-limits to them. In December, Count Georgi and the King himself invited themselves over to the castle for a Christmas Eve dinner, during which Elizabeth attempted to serve them a strange grey cake. The men tasted it and soon became sick. The Count was convinced Elizabeth had tried to poison them. This was the final straw. Soon after, Count Georgi made another surprise visit to the castle in the hope of catching Elizabeth in the act. That's when he got more than he bargained for. It's been said that Count Georgi stumbled across the mutilated body of a young girl right there in the entryway and found two more girls dying inside. Part of the story goes that the Count actually walked in on Elizabeth in the process of murdering yet another girl. Even if any part of that story isn't true, there was certainly no lack of evidence as to what had been going on. Elizabeth had been doing this for going on 30 years and in that time, she had grown careless. Her private torture chamber was right there for Count Georgi and his personal guard to see. All around were any number of well-used implements of death and mayhem, including the infamous spiked cage that still bore traces of human blood inside. Count Georgi set a couple of notaries loose to begin collecting eyewitness testimony about what Elizabeth had been up to in the castle. It wasn't hard at all to find people willing to talk about the horrors that had been going on for years. More than 300 people offered to testify against Elizabeth and her closest aides. These witnesses weren't just confined to the local peasants either. Some of them were fellow nobles, as well as staff from the Countess's various homes. A group of priests who lived in a monastery next door to one of Elizabeth's castles claimed that the screams coming from inside the building were so loud at night that they had to clang pots against the walls in order to drown them out. But even beyond all the eager witnesses who came forward was all the physical evidence they found as well. Namely, the many bodies of the young women Elizabeth had murdered. Several of those bodies were dumped in fields outside the villages. Others turned up buried in shallow graves in local graveyards while still others were found locked up in assorted rooms inside Elizabeth's castle. Charred human remains were found in a fireplace. Still other body parts were dug up around Elizabeth's estate. The evidence continued to pile up against Elizabeth and her handful of helpers, including Anna de Verulia. Anna, Count Georgi learned, had acted as Elizabeth's personal witch, chief executioner, and was even rumored to be the Countess's lover. Aside from Elizabeth herself, there was no one Count Georgi wanted to put on trial more than Anna. But Anna died before he ever got a chance to arrest her. This left Count Georgi only able to prosecute Elizabeth's four closest servants, who willingly aided in gathering the murdered girls and disposing of their bodies. Prosecuting Elizabeth herself was a complete impossibility. It's not that they didn't have the evidence to prove their case, but Elizabeth's wealth and political power shielded her from prosecution. In fact, it's said that during the trial of her servants, Elizabeth's name was only spoken once. In the end, the four servants were charged with the murder by torture of 80 young women. The irony isn't lost that all four defendants were tortured into confessing to everything. With their confessions in hand, the quartet was swiftly convicted and sentenced to death in varying ways. Two of them had their fingers torn off with pinchers before their bodies were tossed onto a fire. The third was given the mercy of merely being beheaded. The fourth was locked away for life. As for Elizabeth herself, although she was never publicly tried for her crimes, she didn't entirely escape punishment either. She was locked away in her own bedroom in Kashtis Castle. Then workmen walled up the room's windows and doors, leaving only a narrow food hatch connecting her to the outside world. She swore her innocence to her dying day insisting to anyone who would listen that all the murders had been the work of her servants and that she had been afraid for her life. Elizabeth spent the next four years in complete isolation before dying in that room on August 21, 1614. The actual number of victims of Elizabeth Bothery varies depending on who you ask. Officially, the number of victims is 80, which is the actual number Elizabeth's four accomplices were convicted of. Some historians say the real number may actually be as low as 40 or 50, which would still put Elizabeth Bathory in the upper echelon of the most prolific serial killers in history. Although one of the stories that came to light during the trial places that number much, much higher. One servant girl came forward who claimed that the Countess kept a detailed journal of each and every person she had murdered, and that she had stumbled across it one day while her mistress was away. The girl claimed there were 650 names in that journal, That number is certainly staggering, but let's be clear, this is also one of the areas where the wheels begin to come off this story a bit. Although it makes for a great horror story, if you think about it, you have to wonder how the servant girl could have ever known there were 650 names in the book, or that they were all dead. It seems unlikely the girl would have had time to count them all, and considering her knowledge of the consequences of her snooping, it seems even more unlikely she ever would have attempted it in the first place. Not to mention the fact that this book never actually turned up during all the evidence gathering, and the only one who ever claimed to have seen it was the one servant girl. There are some historians today who believe the Countess may have been either partially or completely innocent of the terrible crime she was accused of. It's believed that Count Thurzo had much to gain if she was brought down. She was a single woman in possession of a great amount of wealth and land. There were a number of European lords who owed her money, including the King of Hungary himself, and who probably weren't very interested in paying their debts. One story suggests that Elizabeth actually wanted to be put on trial in order to defend herself, but her wealthy and powerful family swiftly quashed that, since if Elizabeth was found guilty, all her wealth would instantly be forfeited to the King. Is it possible then that she was the victim of a conspiracy of people? Out to get her by portraying her as a monster? Perhaps. There's no question that some of the stories about Elizabeth have been exaggerated over the centuries. In fact, one of the most famous legends about Elizabeth Bathory didn't first appear until almost a century after she died. You've probably heard the legend that Elizabeth would take luxurious baths in virgin blood in order to keep herself young. But this story didn't actually appear in print until 1729 in a book written by a Jesuit scholar. It's easy to see why this particular legend is endured. Vanity is something we can all understand and it offers some possible explanation for what seems like unspeakable crimes. Keep in mind that during the Middle Ages gossip and hysteria were widespread. This was still a time when it was thought that people could be possessed by demons and that single women were often susceptible to becoming witches. It was, by and large, a male-run society. Women in power and women who were viewed as not showing the proper respect for their male counterparts were often accused of being consorts of the devil. After Elizabeth's husband, Count Ferenc, died, leaving her alone with such an enormous fortune would have been like painting a target on her back. Of course, keep in mind, more than 300 people came forward to testify about the nefarious things going on in Elizabeth's castle. So we can't completely discount the idea that she was up to no good either. Some historians who believe that Elizabeth Bothery was set up say all the witnesses were motivated by a moral panic. This is a phenomenon which we have seen repeated throughout history. You may recall during the 1980s and early 90s the so-called Satanic Panic that set in throughout the United States... This was an era when it seemed like every other news program was talking about the secret satanic cults that had infiltrated society and were out to steal our children or warp their minds through heavy metal music. Whenever a moral panic overtakes a society, there's a general sense that there is some great evil that threatens societal values and interests. In the case of Elizabeth Bothory, it is certainly true there were a lot of people with a vested interest in slandering her name but that also doesn't necessarily make her innocent either. As the saying goes, where there's smoke, there's fire. And in the case of Elizabeth Bothry, there was a whole lot of smoke. Sure, it's true that some of the testimony against her was obtained through torture, which can compel someone to say whatever it is the torturer wants. But not everyone who testified was tortured. Nor were they all hearsay witnesses either. As I mentioned, there were still plenty of people with direct knowledge who came forward like the priests at the monastery who tried to block out the sounds of all the screaming. In all the research I've done, even the people who believe Elizabeth never murdered anyone tend to concede that she probably beat her servants mercilessly. To me, it doesn't seem like that big of a stretch that she would have killed some of these girls as well. Besides, there are some big flaws in the belief that Count Thurzo and others were conspiring to seize her wealth. For one thing, when her husband Ferenc died, legally, all the money didn't actually go to Elizabeth. Instead, it would have gone to his then six-year-old son. Under Hungarian law, that boy would have become the legal owner of the estate when he turned 14. If the plan had been to lock Elizabeth up to seize her land, they'd have had to arrest her kids as well. Plus, you may recall a law I mentioned that was on the books called the Tripartitum? Well, this law specifically prevented Count Thurzo from gaining any wealth from prosecuting Elizabeth, so he couldn't just frame her to get rich. In the end, it's unlikely we'll ever know the full truth about Elizabeth Bothery. After she was imprisoned, the original court records were sealed, and the Hungarian parliament decreed that her name would no longer be spoken in society. But that didn't make her legend go away, though. Quite the opposite. Elizabeth Bothry's name has become legendary in vampire lore and comes close to rivaling that of the biggest bat in the room, Count Dracula. In fact, historian Raymond McNally has suggested that it's actually more her legend that inspired Bram Stoker to write Dracula, rather than that of Vlad the Impaler. Numerous books, movies, and television shows have been made about her. It's said that in one of the latest seasons of American Horror Story that Lady Gaga's Vampire Queen was inspired by her. By my count, there are even at least eight black metal bands named after her. Today, two of the four towers in Kostice Castle have crumbled to the ground, and there's no longer a roof over any of what remains of the structure. But if you're ever visiting what is now modern-day Slovakia, you can still visit the wing of the fortress where the Countess lived, and still walk through the lower-level chamber where most of the torture is said to have taken place. One last thing. If there's one thing we can all agree on about Elizabeth Bothry, is that she wasn't a vampire. We can agree on that, right? There's no such thing, after all. The blood countess died in 1614 after complaining that her hands were cold, then laying down in her bed and just drifting away. She was buried in holy ground, but the locals complained, and soon they dug her up and moved her remains to the Bothry crypt. The only thing is... When they reopened that crypt in 1995, no trace of Elizabeth Bothory was found. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a bunch of new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Jay, Anne, Lisa, Charles, Dave, Teresa, Josh, Jennifer, and my friend Rob over at the R Strange Skies podcast. If you want to hear about all things UFO-related... Then Rob is your resident expert, and Our Strange Skies is your podcast. Just a reminder, Patreon supporters get access to all sorts of rewards like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to our bonus mini-episodes. They're like the episode you just listened to, only fun size. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts. Besides Apple, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, Thanks so much, and I hope you'll join us again next time.